T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens. Even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Hi there, and welcome to Because I Said So, a parenting program that approaches the parent-child relationship from a biblical point of view. I'm John Roseman, psychologist and 40-year veteran of family counseling. Welcome to the show. We'll take your calls in a few minutes at 404-419-6499. That's 404-419-6499. But first... You can always count on researchers at Harvard University up in Cambridge to tell us things we either already know or don't need to know. And researchers at Harvard, it seems, have recently discovered that if you want your children to become Republicans, now this is an actual research study, over 50 pages long. You can look it up on the Internet. Just uh, go to Harvard Republicans, Fourth of July parades. If you want your children to become Republicans when they grow up, all you have to do is take them to Fourth of July parades, okay? And, uh, in fact, what these researchers discovered is that every... Fourth of July parade you take your child to increases by 2% the likelihood that when he or she, your child grows up, he or she will vote Republican. So if you want to increase your child's likelihood of voting Republican by 30%, the math is uh, goes this way, you take your child to 15 Fourth of July parades. Uh, can you believe that that people would actually do research? And that this is Harvard for you, though. We can assume that these researchers are hyper liberal, left wing socialist types, can't we? Because sending your child to Harvard nearly guarantees that all he will hear for four years or however long it takes him to complete his miseducation are lectures given by hyper-liberal left-wing socialist types, which increases greatly the likelihood that he will begin to sympathize with hyper-liberal left-wing socialist philosophy and, guess what, vote Democrat. In other words, if you do not want your child, and I didn't do any research to come to this conclusion, by the way. I spent no taxpayer money whatsoever. And you can send your thanks to me at uh, radio at roseman.com, my email address here. In other words, if you do not want your child to grow up and vote Democrat, then all you need to do is not send your child to Harvard or Yale or Stanford, Princeton, the University of Chicago, the University of North Carolina, 
or any other hoity-toity private university or just about these days and very unfortunately any public university. Reading between the lines, it's obvious that what these esteemed Harvard professors, the ones who came up with the brilliant conclusion after conducting brilliant research that 4th of July parades threaten our national slide to the left, what they are really, really, really trying to prove is that Republicans are an emotional, irrational bunch whose voting habits were shaped during childhood attendance at emotional patriotic events like 4th of July parades. Come to think of it, I happen to vote Republican. I spend less time in a voting booth than anyone I, I maintain, and parades have always caused an upwelling of emotion in me. I choke back tears every time a marching band goes by, the American flag proudly held by the guy out front. I suppose that reaction is a carryover from my childhood, from my mother taking me to parades. I don't specifically remember Fourth of July parades, but in fact, one of my first memories, it may be my first memory, is of a parade, a dress parade to be specific. It was around 1950. My parents and I were living on base at Fort Story, Virginia, in officer's housing. My father was a captain in the Army. I was three years old or just shy of three. And I remember my mother calling me over to the window to watch a dress parade that was going by. And she pointed out my father to me, but I couldn't pick him out. Everyone looked exactly the same. Shortly thereafter, my dad went to Japan where he was stationed during the Korean War. My mother took me back to Charleston, South Carolina, the ancestral family home where her family had once been somebody's, but were now nobody's because they had lost all their money during the Depression. I remember this was the kind of, the only thing we could afford, really. I remember her taking me to dress parades at the Citadel. They were exciting for me, seeing all those cadets marching in such tight precision. And again, they all looked the same. And then I remember watching a parade of characters from a production of The Three Little Pigs that was put on at the Dock Street Theater in Charleston. I was probably four at the time. All the characters were in full costume. They came dancing up the street to the delight of all the children. We were gathered on the sidewalk outside, and we followed them into the theater. If you know the story of The Three Little Pigs, it's definitely a Republican sort of tale, emphasizing personal responsibility, hard work, and all of the other values that Republicans tend to promote. Come to think of it, I may have the three little pigs to thank for my political leanings. Anyway, after hearing about this Harvard study, supposedly linking Fourth of July parades to Republican voting habits, I went to the Internet and began reading it, gave up after a few pages because it hurt my head. It was about 50 pages long, filled with all manner of impressive charts and graphs and things like that. Now, the fact of the matter is that a study of this impressive sort costs money to do. And so the question becomes, where did the money come from? And there is great likelihood, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, that the money came from you and me. Because lots and lots of stupid, absolutely dumb social science research is unwittingly funded by people like you and me, the taxpayers. I say stupid because with maybe three exceptions in the entire universe... There is no such thing as a social scientist. There are only social ideologues, professors who are not trying to discover truths, 
Rather, they are trying to prove a point. And like the study in question, the points they are often trying to prove are nearly always liberal lefty points. In brief, they're trying to prove that conservatives and Republicans and Christians who are conservative Republicans are mean-spirited people who don't think clearly and vote the way they do because they attended 4th of July parades. I remember getting an announcement a while back about some exciting new research in animal psychology. The title of the research was An Analysis of the Distress Calls of Neonatal Gerbils. Yep, I'm not kidding. That's where our money is going, folks, into research of that sort, analyzing the distress calls of cute little baby gerbils. So here's what I have to say about that Harvard study. Thanks for telling the rest of us what we already know, that when a child's parents expose him to celebrations of America's greatness and talk to him about the unique exceptionalism of the American idea, those values are likely to take hold. If you're willing to wait long enough, you'll discover that the truth eventually wins, and that applies to a lot of stuff, in fact. I'm John Roseman. This is Because I Said So. Our phone number is 404 419 6499. You can email your questions to radio at roseman.com. You can find out more about me at uh, my website, johnroseman.com. Remember, we are carried only on the American Family Radio Network, and thanks to them. Back with your calls after this. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The name of the show is Because I Said So. And you can find out more about me if you're interested by going to my website at uh, John Rosemond or Rosemond, as some people pronounce it, dot com. In brief, I'm a uh, psychologist who doesn't believe in psychology. I think psychology has created more problems for the American family than psychologists even know how to solve. I am uh, a believer in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am the author of about 20 books on child-rearing and family issues. I write a nationally syndicated newspaper column, appears in about 200 newspapers around the country weekly on parenting, as it's now called. And by the way, last spring I had the pleasure and privilege of... uh, going to Tupelo, Mississippi, the headquarters of the American Family Association, and recording four videos. Each one is approximately 30 minutes in length on four different topics. And you can find those videos by going to afastore.net. And at this time, we've got a caller on the line from Little Rock, Arkansas. Her name is Suzanne. And Suzanne, I'll be in Little Rock this fall at Collegiate Episcopal School. Spread it around. Really? Yes, I will be. Absolutely. I'll be there. I'll be doing a, uh, uh, as I recall, I don't have my calendar right in front of me. It's either late September, early October, Collegiate Episcopal School. And uh, you can call the school and get more information about that. But I'll be doing a uh, seminar for the teachers there. 
and then I'll be doing an evening presentation to parents if you're interested. Wonderful. I am interested. I'll be there. Great. Well, listen, you promised to come up and introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm Suzanne from the radio show. Yes, I will. Cool. Very cool. Well, how can I help you, Suzanne? Well, I want to know what to do about a whiny four-and-a-half-year-old little girl. (laughs) She uh, whines even when it's unnecessary. I mean, it's always unnecessary, but, but you know what I mean. She whines even if she's just asking for a drink of water. So I just wanted to know what to do about that without getting so mad that I explode and then everyone's upset. It is irritating after a while, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it yes, really yes. is. I mean, it, you know, and I can't tell you the number of parents who have asked me the same questions, Suzanne, right. about I, children I, I around the same age. You know, the the uh, it's it's like chalk, you know, being scraped across a blackboard. Uh, right. I want a drink of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you can say to people, "Well, just ignore it." You know, right? And that that's you know, if you don't have an answer. That is the default answer that psychologists will tell you. Just ignore it. Right. Uh, these people have never had children, I'm convinced, right. you know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, uh, so this happens. How many times a day would you estimate? I mean, the whining, yeah. is it just interminable? It is. From the time she wakes up until the time she goes to bed. Right, unless she's getting what she wants. Okay. And, and does she know what you mean by whining. Yes. She, you're yes, very that, clear on that, that. I'm very clear on it. Very. Uh, okay. Here's what I would do then. Are you ready? Are you writing this down? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, what I would do, and, and the book that I discussed this in is a book called The Well-Behaved Child, Discipline That Really Works. And the, uh, the specific technique, I call it the doctor Ah, yes, okay. You sound like you're somewhat familiar with it already. I am, I am. Okay, well, this is the technique I would use. Very, very simple technique. Very, very successful, especially with limited problems like this one that are targeted easily, and also especially with children around the same age. Uh, What I would do is just sit your daughter down and say, uh, you talked with a doctor, and he's the most brilliant parenting doctor in the entire universe. And that he has informed you that children who whine all the time, uh, and I'll put myself into your shoes and say, as do you, as we have discussed you doing quite frequently, are really whining. Uh, it's, it's whining is a form of lazy talking, and this lazy talking is the result of not getting enough sleep. Oh. And so the doctor has said that I can allow you to whine twice a day. And uh, the third whine, you uh, have to go to your room and your bedtime is right after dinner. And that's because the cure for your whining is, according to this most brilliant parenting expert in the whole world, uh, (laughs) the, the cure is more sleep. So... From that point on, what you do is she whines, and, and she starts out with, you know, a clean slate every morning. Okay. And uh, if she whines, you just say, now that's your first whine of the day. You're only allowed one more. And the second whine of the day, you tell her that's your second whine of the day, and that's all you're allowed. And you see, what what this does, Suzanne, 
is in addition to giving her the motivation to stop her whining, to control it, okay, and you getting upset is not motivation, okay? No. Let's, let's make that very, very clear. Right. Parents who simply get upset over their children's behavior, that is not motivation. No. And, but now you'll be providing her motivation, and the motivation is, uh, you know, implicit to this whole plan is if you want to stay up till your normal bedtime, you better control your whining. And so it's going to make her more aware of her whining, number one. It's Mm -hmm. going to, number two, give you something to do that you can feel is productive, that you're making some headway with this. And that will help you control your emotional reaction to it. And you simply tell her that uh, the third whine of the day means that she has to go to her room for the rest of the day and she goes to bed immediately after dinner. And I guarantee you, Suzanne, she'll go to her room at 9 o'clock in the morning the first day. (laughs) Right. There is no doubt about it. Right. But she has to learn. This is, you know, there is no problem with a four-year-old spending the entire day in a room that is heated uh, in the winter and air-conditioned in the summer and has things to do in this room. Yeah, uh, right. It, it's just that, you know, truth be told, she would rather not be in her room uh, unless it's of her own volition. And especially, right. she would not like to, she would rather not be in a room all day uh, against her own wishes. And so you're providing her a lot of mo- motivation here, and you tell her the doctor says that when the whining is, uh, when, when you don't have three strikes, when you can control this to only two whines a day, for two weeks straight, 14 straight days, okay. then you can get your bedtime back. And you put up a 14-day chart on okay. the refrigerator, and every day that she has success, only two whines or less a day, you put up a happy face on one of the blocks, and... Um, if she goes five days and then has four wines on day six, then you take down that 14-day chart and you put up another one and you start over again. Wow, it'll, okay. It'll probably take her uh, four years old, uh, this problem, whining. You don't have a whole lot of history behind it, actually. I would say it'll take her uh, four to six weeks to get control of it. Okay. 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 All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And I expect to see you at Collegiate Episcopal in Little Rock. Whenever that is, go to my website, johnroseman.com, and uh, my my fall schedule should be up there and uh, should give you the particulars. Okay. Well, I will look at it, and I look forward to meeting you. Thank you so much. Likewise, Suzanne. Thank you so much. And uh, now we have another caller on the line from Ocean... New Jersey. Her name is Robin. Robin, how are you and how can I help you? I'm fine, Mr. Roseman. It's a pleasure speaking with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks very much. Good. Well, I have, um, if I may just give you a little bit of a brief history, um, we moved from, um, New, from Georgia to New Jersey about two years ago. And when we moved here, my boys were 9 and 11. And now my oldest, who is, he is now 13, um, when we moved here, he was this sweet, loving, southern young man. And I just, 
particularly probably in the last six months, I've just seen this huge change in him. And I, I feel like I can almost say this because I am from New Jersey. I left for 28 years, but I was raised in New Jersey. He's almost been jersified. It is... Um, <laughs> I know. Is that, I feel like I can say that simply because I'm from here. If I wasn't from here, I couldn't say it. It is just, um, it's just very different up here. It's very fast-paced. It's um, somewhat materialistic. Um, it's just a very different environment. I feel like my child has learned quite a bit things that I probably prefer he not learn outside of the home and in school. Um, that it's it's just a different world up here, and he has this. I guess the best way I can say it is this larger than life attitude, and I really don't know how to address it. Um, well, I let me stop child- you right there, Robin. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I could go on and yeah, on. Yeah, you're very passionate, somewhat frustrated about it. Now, for, first of all, this is a 13 year old, and and it isn't unusual in this day and time for there to be a sea change in a child's attitude taking place around age 13. So even though you attribute this to moving to New Jersey, and by the way, disclaimer here, this program and its host have no problems with people from New Jersey. Oh, um, I know that, and I love New Jersey, but... Well, well I, there are parts of... You know, I, I have a New Jersey story to tell, but I, I won't tell it right now. But a, anyway, what I mean to tell you is, Robin, that this um, problem of his self-centeredness, his sort of attitude issue, may or may not be the result of moving from Georgia to New Jersey. Um, you know, he's trying to satisfy the requirements of membership in a brand new peer group. And so he is adopting some of their mannerisms, but to attribute this to to New Jersey may or may not be an accurate uh, attribution. And and this, I discuss this in my book, teen proofing, teen proofing. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it. If you've got a teenager, I would recommend it. Um, Does he have a cell phone? Yes, and uh-huh. his nose never comes out of it. Well, then take his nose out of it until his attitude improves. I mean, that's okay. what I would do. I would just say, hey, you know, I got you a cell phone and your attitude changed. So guess what? Your cell phone is uh, leaving your body and leaving your life until your attitude comes back to normal. Robin, thanks for the call. I hope this has been helpful. It's just that simple as far as I'm concerned. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back in a few minutes with more Because I Said So. Stay tuned. From American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Uh, Welcome back to the show, and we begin this segment with uh, amazing, astounding, and often wacky parenting stories from around the world, but mostly in the United States. Uh, This is a truly, I I, I read this, and I, I just sat there shaking my head and thinking, you know, this is why America's public schools are broken And uh, I used to think as recently as um, 10 years ago that America's public schools could be fixed 
but uh, I, I, I'm really becoming increasingly doubtful that uh, they can get fixed. Um, they just seem to, to, the more time goes on to get all, uh, to take on assignments that uh, are increasingly wacky and have nothing to do with a proper mission, a proper educational mission. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to name the school board. I'm not going to name the school. I'm not going to name people. Uh, I'll withhold all that information to protect the guilty. But um, there is a certain school board in a certain school system in America uh, that has figured out how to make sure teenagers get enough sleep. Okay, now, what does this have to do with education? Absolutely nothing. And as furthermore, this is a parental responsibility. It is not a school responsibility. I mean, you know, when I was going to school, schools didn't send home memos to parents on how to make sure we got enough sleep. This is ridiculous. Okay, uh, the matter, granted, the the matter of the ubiquitous sleep-deprived, underachieving, uh, also known as groggy teen, has received, you know, lots of media attention of late. Uh, This is not due to epidemic teen insomnia, mind you, but to the fact that most teens don't go to bed at a sensible hour. It's as simple as that. On a school night... Uh, Most school nights, many an American teen is still wide awake at midnight, talking on the phone, texting on the phone, chatting on the Internet, uh, playing video games, uh, doing whatever they're doing uh, other than sleeping. Uh, uh, So, unnamed school board decided to take this matter under advisement and solve it by, gosh, making sure kids get enough sleep is, after all, what school boards are for. So, after great debate and discussion, said school board decided that whereas the high schools in their community have always commenced classes at 8 o'clock a.m., that come September, classes will begin at 9 o'clock a.m. Thus, every high school student will come to school alert and ready to learn, having had, ta-da, one more hour of sleep. Wow, I don't think so. Rather, I predict the teens in this community will simply take the opportunity provided by the later start of the school day to stay up even later at night. A teen who chats on the internet until midnight uh, up until this time will chat until 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, after this rule is implemented. Believe it or not, I believe I figured out all of that by myself. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, someone out there is saying, and just how would you solve the problem? Oh, well, I don't have a solution. I mean, I have some fantasy solutions, but they're very far-fetched. For example, if I were the supreme potentate of American parenting, I'd force all parents under severe penalty to remove all telephones, televisions, video games, computers, and telephones from their children's rooms. I might force them to do so only after 8 o'clock, but I'd force them to do it. Okay, do you see what I mean? It's far-fetched. But my purpose here is not to propose a solution. I don't have one. Rather, it is to propose something very simple and commonsensical, and that is that schools 
cannot solve these sorts of problems and should not be wasting their energy trying to solve these sorts of problems. Invariably, when schools try to solve problems they should not be trying to solve, they come up with solutions, and I put that word in quotation marks, that don't work and often make things worse. The do-gooder school board in said unnamed community has succumbed to the ridiculous notion that if parents will not solve a problem, then the schools must, and even if they fail miserably, they should keep on trying. This mentality has given us AIDS prevention, anti-smoking prevention, anti-bullying, anti-drug use programs that aren't working, haven't worked, and never will. These worthless, albeit well-intentioned efforts cost lots of money, and guess who, whose money that is? It is yours and mine. Teens aren't getting enough sleep because their parents don't force them to make difficult decisions. That is, do you want to stay up late and make mediocre grades, or do you want me to help you obtain a driver's license? Teens aren't getting enough sleep because too many of today's parents are afraid to assume leadership positions in their children's lives. They're afraid to make unpopular decisions for fear their children won't like them. I praise my parents for not caring whether I like them or not. They provided me with leadership. As a consequence, I got enough sleep. And that's our wacky parenting moment for the week. From your host, John Roseman, the show is Because I Said So on American Family Radio Network. And we've got a caller on the line, Leslie from Jackson, Mississippi. Leslie, how you doing and how can I help you? Well, I have a three-year-old. Well, she's three and a half years old and she rules our house. Why do you let that happen? It, it's like she's, she's, she will whine and scream for us to change the TV channel or make my chocolate milk this way or those aren't the right socks and the only way I can we can seem to make her stop or please her is to just do what she says well that's why she continues to throw these tantrums <laughs> well I get that part um, how do I make her stop throwing the tantrums I mean we've tried well wait a minute Leslie we can go around and around here she throws a tantrum, you do what she wants. How do you get her to stop throwing the tantrum? You stop doing what she wants. And then she just throws, keeps throwing the tantrum. Okay, but here is a fact. What you're looking for, and I don't mean this as a criticism, I'm just trying to open your eyes to this, to the reality of the situation. What you're looking for is an instant solution. Uh, there is truth in the old adage that things get worse before they get better. Now, the first thing you need to do is you need to accept that you have created this problem. Are you willing to accept that? Yes, okay. we, we are. Then it, it, this is the good news. If you've created it, then you can solve it. Do you accept that? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, the way to solve it, but if you go about solving it, I can guarantee you things will get worse before they get better. You're looking for an instant solution. There is not an instant solution. There is a solution. If you apply yourself to the solution, I can virtually guarantee you 
that the tantrum issue will be all but solved within six weeks. Can you hang in there that long? I think I can. Can you keep your sanity? Um, that's questionable, but I think between <laughs> my husband and I, we can we can help each other. We will tap out, you know. I mean, after like an hour of screaming about getting our hair washed, um, you know, I say, "Hey, I, I need a break," and he'll take over, or vice versa. I guess we're the like it's times like in the morning when our I need to get my other two children to school and myself to work on time, and it's like you know, she's so difficult. So those, it's times like that when we need to go somewhere or, or be somewhere on time, um, that we give in because it's just like, we just, we have to make everything else work. I understand. Leslie, here's a reality. You can't solve this problem unless you're willing to make some sacrifices. In other words, you can't solve this problem unless you're willing to occasionally be late and to somewhere that you need to be. You can't solve this problem and everything else in your life remain normal, but you can solve this problem. But you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You're going to have to cut your losses for a period of time. What I would recommend, and this is exactly what I did with my daughter when she was three years old, Amy, who is now a charming, tantrum-free 43-year-old, (laughs) So did it take 40 years? (laughs) Oh, well, it didn't take quite that long, okay? (laughs) I have a long attention span. Uh, Leslie, uh, she started throwing tantrums when she was three years old over green things on her plate. She would not tolerate green things on her plate. Broccoli, green beans, Brussels sprouts, anything that that, uh, was green uh, was not tolerated. And she would begin screaming and yelling at the dinner table about uh, taking the green thing off of her plate. And uh, the tantrums over green things morphed into tantrums over everything and anything that wouldn't that didn't go her way. And so finally, what my wife Willie and I did was we uh, assigned her a tantrum place, which was the downstairs bathroom. We took her in there one day and we said... Uh, There are places in the house for doing special things. We have a bathtub for taking baths. We have um, beds for sleeping in. We have the table in the dining room for eating in. And tantrums are very special things. And so uh, your doctor has told us that we need a special place for you to throw tantrums in. And we discussed it with him. And he told us that the downstairs bathroom was the best place because... There's a rug on the floor. If you want to roll around while you're throwing your tantrum, you can roll around very comfortably. If you scream so loud that you have to use the toilet, the toilet is right here. And we will put a cup on the sink. And if you need to get a drink of water because uh, you're screaming so loud, you can get a drink of water for yourself. But from now on, whenever you throw a tantrum, you're going to be led by one of us into this tantrum place and you can throw your tantrum here, and when your tantrum is over, you may come out. And uh, Leslie, initially, she would throw, you know, 15 to 20-minute tantrums in the tantrum place, but very, very quickly, the tantrums not only reduced endurancy, but also, in other words, length, but also reduced in frequency. Leslie, thanks for your call. I appreciate it a great deal. Hope this has been helpful. 
I'm John Roseman, the host of Because I Said So. You can find out more about me at uh, my website, johnroseman.com. Remember, we are carried only on the American Family Radio Network, and thanks to them. Back in a minute. Uh, welcome back to the show. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Rosemond. Our number, if you want to call and join the show, is 404-419-6499. Uh, once again, I'm John Rosemond, family psychologist who doesn't believe in psychology, believes in the sufficiency of scripture in all things and in all respects. Uh, author of about 20 books on parenting and family issues, nationally syndicated columnist, public speaker, and now... Radio talk show host whose program is carried only on the American Family Radio Network. And uh, we're going to jump right into Rachel from New York. Rachel, how are you and how can I help you, sweetie? Hello, John. I'm good, thank you. Good. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. My question concerns somebody's 13 year old son. His father, uh, we were married um, 27 years. And we had a wonderful relationship. As a matter of fact, um, he just, um, out of the blue, literally, it seemed out of the blue, he just walked out. Um, he had found somebody else, and he totally discarded us like we didn't even matter. Four kids. The older ones are um, in their 20s. And never contacted um, John. Had wanted nothing to do with him. That was a year ago. And now he wants him back in his life, and John doesn't want anything to do with him. And he's taking um, us to court over to force visitation. So my question for you is, um, what does that do to a child to force visitation? And how much say should a 13-year-old have in whether um, his father should be seeing him? They they were very close, and we're, the family were very close. Um, so, I mean, mass every Sunday. Um, grace before meals, had family meals together. I mean, I thought we did everything right. Rachel, how uh, has the court already ordered visitation? Um, the court, um, no, nope, the court didn't, but I agreed to it in the divorce papers that he could see him every other weekend, but John has refused to see him. That's why it's back in court, because John does not want to see well, him. Well, that's what I mean. I'm following all that. But what I'm asking you is, it's now back in court. The court has not ruled on this yet, correct? No, okay. that is correct. No. In most states, and I, I am not an attorney, so please do not, uh, no, take, not take my word for it, but most states have what's called an age of discretion, where the child has significant say in custody and visitation issues. Uh, I would be surprised if the court did not solicit your son's opinion about this and have a great deal of respect for your son's opinion. On the other hand, uh, what may happen is that the court would feel that visitation is necessary and it's necessary to force it in order to uh, mend the relationship between the father and the son. Um and, and and by the way, Rachel, forced visitation may accomplish exactly that. It may mend the relationship between the father and the son. So I am not um, uh, necessarily opposed 
uh, in principle to the court forcing this on a 13-year-old child. But what mm-hmm. I would say is that if the child's uh, relationship with his father is not mended or significantly improved after six months, um, I, I would ask your attorney to revisit this issue, you know, six months to a year later if if no progress in healing the relationship uh, has taken place. Okay, yes. Um, he is in counseling um, to try and help Menda too, but that isn't working so far um, to get him to agree to see his dad. Well, counseling, there is no evidence that counseling with children who have not specifically requested counseling for themselves and that would certainly be the case here, is going to have any degree of effectiveness whatsoever, Mm -hmm. which is why when I was in private practice, people would come to me, parents would come to me with problems, and they would ask me if I wanted to see the kid in question. And my standard answer was, if your son or your daughter specifically requests to sit down with me and talk with me, I will see him or her. But in the absence of a specific request from your child, I'm afraid that all I'd be doing is wasting your time and your money. And I'm not going to do that. I'm a very research-oriented person. I can tell you there is no evidence whatsoever that therapy with children who have not requested the counseling or therapy, whatever you want to call it, is going to work. So counseling, has this counseling been ordered by the court? Yes, it has. Oh, well, then he's forced into it, which is very, uh, you know, it just speaks to the ignorance of, of, of people in these situations that they don't consult the research. They don't talk to people who are aware of what the research says. I, I'm very sorry to hear that all this has happened, but here, here's what I do have to say about it, that uh, in the final analysis, the research does indicate that the presence of a father in a boy's life during the teenage years uh, and, and, you know, given certain uh, conditions, the father is a responsible guy. He's not an immoral guy. Uh, he doesn't use drugs. He's not an alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. That the presence of a father in a teenage boy's life has nothing but positive effect. And so what I would do is simply go with the flow here and see what happens uh within this parent the father child relationship you know under the circumstances un- unfortunate circumstances forcing a 13 year old into this kind of thing but it may turn out well Rachel thanks for your call we've got uh, another caller on the line from Jonesboro Arkansas Ashley how are you doing I'm well how are you doing doing just fine where's Jonesboro It's northeast Arkansas about an hour outside of Memphis Okay, hour outside of Memphis. How close are you to Little Rock? About two hours. Okay, well, I'm going to be in Little Rock this fall. You can go are to my you? calendar. Yeah, you can go to my speaking calendar on, on my website, johnroseman.com. And uh, I'm going to be at Collegiate Episcopal School. It's either late September or October. I don't have the calendar in front of me, but it's the information is right there on the website. So uh, Fantastic. if you're willing to make a two-hour drive, I'll be there. I have lots of family in Little Rock. I might invite them all. Well, an excuse <laughs> an excuse to go down and hang out with your family. There you go. Definitely. There definitely. you go. So how can I help you? 
Well, first of all, let me say I'm just so excited to talk with you, and I'm, I'm really excited about um, your radio show and um, appreciate you taking my call. Thank you, and you're welcome. I am a huge fan and have read lots of your books and your columns, and um, so I feel like the question I'm about to pose to you, I, I probably know what you might say, but maybe I'm um, trying to implement this in the wrong way. Try me anyway, even though you know okay. what I'm going to say. all right. <laughs> okay. My son, who is seven and a half, as he will tell you, has developed a nasty habit of back-talking and arguing with me on even the most mundane things. And from reading your books and columns, I've learned not to engage the argument, use the because I said so, keep it calm. Um, we even, my husband and I started putting him to bed immediately after dinner. I mean, immediately. Okay, well, the doctor says you must be very tired. So we're going to put you to bed until this stops. And it will stop for a period of time and then it regresses into more back talk and arguing. And so I'm just kind of looking to you to um, give me some advice on how to quell this back talk. Okay. So uh, when you reach a certain limit, you put him to bed early. How many nights in a row do you put him to bed early? Usually three to four. Okay, and the back talking stops? Oh, yes. For how long? Oh, Generally? a few weeks. A few weeks. Okay, few so weeks. three or four days results in a few weeks of the back talking stopping. Yes. Okay. Well, then mathematically, putting him to bed for one month in a row should stop the back talking for. 12 months. I don't know if my math is right on that, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I see your point. Well, my actually, I'm not being facetious. I'm, I'm simply saying that uh, if, if a consequence does not create a permanent memory, mm -hmm. then it is only going to suppress the behavior in question temporarily. Uh -huh. And I'm afraid that with a seven-year-old, three to four nights of going to bed early is not creating a permanent memory. Gotcha. You have to have a compelling consequence, as you say. Exactly. A compelling consequence. And I, I would not be opposed to telling your son, we're going to put you to bed for an entire month. And we're going to see if, uh, if that is persuasive enough with you. And if it's not, we're going to try two months next time. Wow. Uh, there is certainly nothing psychologically harmful about going to bed early when right. you are seven years old. And believe me, uh, the likelihood is that this will be successful, number one. And number two, it'll give him a story to tell people when he's an adult. <laughs> We're on kind of a good streak right now. Would you recommend just the next time that we put the month in place and that yes. he knows about that in advance? No, don't tell him in advance. No, no, no. There's okay. The element of surprise is critical here. Do not tell him in advance, Ashley, what okay. you're going to do. Just spring it on him. Okie dokie. Ashley, thanks for your call. I hope that this has been helpful to you and to our radio audience. Before I leave you, I want to tell you about my brand new book that's already on the shelves. It's called Grandma Was Right After All. Parenting Wisdom from the Good Old Days, published by Tyndale. What I do is recover that wisdom by resurrecting the aphorisms that parents and grandparents and great-grandparents used during their childering years. And what I do is explain what they really meant and how they are still relevant today. And of course, my entire mission and ministry is to resurrect traditional biblically-based parenting in America 
Uh, once again, the title is Grandma Was Right After All. And you can uh, find it on the bookshelves. You can find out more by going to johnrosemond.com. Our producer, Rich Rosel, uh, with assistance from my managing agent, Lisa Wysikowski. Our calls were handled by Thomas Rosel. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.